LinkedIn News. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. So part of that fullness, I would leave space in the shape for psychological skills so that you know how to be calm. You know how to be confident. You know how to adjust and be agile. Those are all trainable skills that you can go into high heat, high stress moments and be like, let's go figure this thing out. Come on. So the external world does not whip around your sense of being. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone, and Happy New Year. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, and this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Before we dive into today's episode, I have an ask of you. Myself and my team would love to hear what you think of our show and what would make it even more valuable for you in 2024. So if you're open to taking just a couple of minutes, we'd love for you to take our anonymous listener survey at www.linkedin.com slash everydaybetter. That's www.linkedin.com slash everydaybetter. All right, on to the episode. Welcome to 2024. January is a month when we think about who we want to become. We correct habits that aren't working. We create resolutions we want to live by and intentions for the year ahead. Why? Because we want to thrive. We want to absolutely love the lives that we're living. But without clarity on what to focus on, it's really easy to miss the mark. So this month, we're introducing a series. It's a roadmap for thriving in four essential areas— physical health, emotional health, relational health, and work health. I want to emphasize work health is not just about your job, but your overall contribution and your sense of purpose. I promise and research shows that if you give each or even one of these areas a little more clear and pointed intention and attention, it'll put you on an upward spiral that'll impact all of the other areas of your life. Now, if you go look up the elements of well-being, you're going to find so many models. Our focus is giving an umbrella to some of the most widely recognized pillars that are backed by research. We'll explore them in some specificity this month, but you'll continue to hear more on these pillars and the ways in which you can thrive throughout the year. So this is the better blueprint for your 2024. Every week, we'll be covering something in each of these areas, all focused on helping you understand more, improve through knowledge, and take action every single day. We're kicking off with Michael Gervais, who by trade is a high-performance psychologist. He's worked with some of the top athletes, Olympians, and executives in the world. But what he is most interested in is the path to self-mastery, being our very best in any environment. If you're a regular listener of the show, you know that's a core focus of our work. When you improve yourself, you improve the relationships around you, and there's a really powerful ripple effect. For Michael, this starts with how to stop worrying about what other people think. And he lovingly calls this FOPO, fear of other people's opinions. We all think we have this spotlight on us and that everyone is paying so much attention to our choices and our actions. But the truth is, they aren't, because they also think they have a spotlight on them. 
So they're much more worried about themselves than they're worried about us. So the question becomes, how can we ever reach our potential if we're constantly afraid of what everyone else thinks and not recognizing that we are all so focused on ourselves? Now, there's a nuance in this. Michael says that we don't want to forget everyone in our lives' thoughts, opinions, and concerns or ideas. But he instead says we should let go of what most people think and be selective about whose opinions we choose to trust. I'm going to let Michael get into this, but it's the only way forward if you're going to make the changes that matter most to you in 2024. So enjoy, and here he is. By trade and training, I am a high-performance psychologist. And so what that means is that I get to spend my time with some of the best in the world across multiple disciplines, people that are literally pushing the frontier of what we understand for human potential. Sometimes it's in sport, sometimes it's in the arts, sometimes it's in business. And the traditional study of psychology is the study of disorders and dysfunction. And this is the study of excellence and how you become your very best. And excellence is this feeling that you have where you can be at home with yourself wherever you are. And then if you add excellence and just kind of step up a little bit to this concept of mastery, mastery is a path of being your very best in any environment and being able to artistically express yourself, whether that's in a boardroom, a living room, whatever canvas that you're working from. So you've got average performance down at the very bottom. Then this idea of peak performance, and peak performance is less interesting to me because it's like you hit the mountaintop and then there's one place down because you don't stay anywhere. Right? right. So the next is like, what is the sustainable best practices for high performance? So ignore the peak thought and just think about like sustaining high performance. And at some level that feels a bit exhausting, but there's brilliance in that. But the next level is what is the path that I'm committed to? How do I want to approach my life? I have such reverence for those that commit fully to a path of mastery, both of self and craft. It's so much richer than peak performance. Doesn't it feel just in nature? There's so much more to go than just peaking. Right. I know you've worked with so many different kinds of people. You've worked with Olympians. You've worked with athletes. Like, tell me more about who you've worked with. Yeah. So there's more that I can't talk about because of the code of Of the work. Yeah. (laughs) But the ones that have been very public, Satya Nadella, CEO and his leadership team at Microsoft, has been one of the most dynamic, deep thinking, progressive, forward-leaning teams and people. In the sport world, um, you might recognize Kerry Walsh Jennings. Mm. You might recognize the Seattle Seahawks, Mm -hmm. Misty May. These are some Olympians that have broken most of the world records. Seattle Seahawks, we got to a Super Bowl, won in dramatic fashion, got back-to-back Super Bowls. Love the Seahawks. Lost in dramatic fashion (laughs) as well. Do you remember Red Bull Stratos? So Red Bull Stratos, Felix Baumgartner wanted to jump from the highest place on earth. So he and his team built a capsule to take him up to 130,000 feet. So it's the stratosphere, Mm -hmm. the edge of the stratosphere. And he was going to jump. And I get called into those projects when they're incredibly dangerous, incredibly consequential, and we must invest in the quality of one's mind. And so I was able to work on that project where the brightest minds in aerospace weren't sure if his arms and legs were going to rip off when he traveled the speed of sound. So those are the types of that's projects. When you get called yeah, in. that's <laughs> those are the types of projects. Yeah, small things. <laughs> yeah, but you might remember it was live on Fox. It was called Heaven Sent. I remember watching like he did something with Red Bull, the one that had the suit on that would go into basically wings and he would jump off of things and then fly. So this is one of those folks. He's one of the best in the world at what you just described. 
And he calls me up and he says, Mike, I'm going to jump from a plane at 30,000 feet, which is not a big deal for these folks. That's like what the airliners travel at. You need Mm -hmm. oxygen. It's just not a big deal for them. And he says, I'm going to jump into a 16-story net that we're going to build. It's about the size of a four-car garage. And I'm going to do it without a parachute. What do you think? You in? (laughs) For what? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so, like, but that is binary. Yeah. If you miss, you die, right? And when you jump, you're jumping into a target the size of a stamp. So you've got to have command of mind, command of body, and command of craft. So we're taking those best practices that work in those consequential, high-speed, high-pressure, exacting environments, and taking those best practices, how do people become their very best in those environments, and crosswalk that into business, which is pressure-packed, speed, accuracy is required, and it's just a good old chronic stress environment. You know, so how do we yeah. be a little bit better inside of ourselves and how do we deploy the brilliant science of psychology in those environments? Because that's where we spend most of our time. Right. So in your book, the idea is stopping the fear of other people's opinions. You talk about the spotlight effect, which I did not know about the spotlight effect. And I was shocked and awed and, oh, my God, that's totally me. And is that everyone else, too? And that was the first thing for me, like kind of the idea of mastering this concept of not fearing other people's opinions that I felt like I needed to actually deal with. To to understand that part. Yeah. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. Let's take a big picture approach first. Sure. Okay. I was 16 years old and I had a lightning bolt moment. And this is going to sound like I was a switched on 16 year old kid, but I wasn't. I was really quite clueless. I grew up surfing. It was like one day in front of the next. All I wanted to do was surf. I barely got through high school just to paint the, the picture as a young person. Definitely counterculture, punk rock in attitude. It was more classic rock just for to, <laughs> to roll out the tone. But I had this moment where I saved up a couple summers to buy my car and it was like $3,000 truck. And I'm driving, I'm a new driver, and I could tell that a car was passing me in the same direction just a little bit faster. I remember sitting like, oh, I want them to know I'm cool. And so I sat up, I grabbed my steering wheel with the kind of a cool kid lean. I glanced over as they're passing me and I thought, they're going to see I'm cool. Mm-hmm. They didn't look. They had no interest <laughs> in what was happening in my car. Zero. And at this moment, I was like really embarrassed. Like, what am I doing? How much time did I waste? Why am I trying to prop myself up? How is that showing up in other parts of my life? Well, it was. I wanted to look good rather than be me. And that kind of felt normal for, you know, a 16-year-old kid. But I didn't want to live that way. My parents were super organic hippies. And they were like, no, be about it. Don't fake the funk. Like, you don't need to prop anything. So I had this tension. I was doing that to look a certain way. And I was embarrassed. So I didn't talk about it. And I didn't know that other people had it. So I was walking around kind of by myself, like, am I okay? Am I not okay? I shouldn't think about that. I should just be me. And it was confusing. Come to find out, you know, 15 years later, I wrap up an advanced degree in psychology and I'm sitting with the best in the world. And they're talking about that too. They're not using that exact same story, of course, but they're talking about, like, what are you afraid of? Now, this is a gold medalist. This is a MVP in the NBA. This is one of the best in the world in martial arts. And I'm asking them these questions, and these are individual clients, so not at the same time. And they're saying things like, no, I'm not afraid of getting hurt. That's not it. So what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of failure. So if I stop the conversation right now and ask you, like, how do you think about failure? What is failure for you? I struggle with that because I am always trying to push on the like failure isn't failure. Failure is learning. 
failure is another avenue to doing something else. But if I go back and if I'm honest, even now, I'm like failure for me is knowing there was potential somewhere that I chose not to approach and untap. So like as you're talking about the car, I went back to I ran track in high school. I ran short distance and I was fast, but I wasn't as fast as like some other people who were like shorter. They had a little less muscle. They were able to sprint a little faster, but I was pretty fast. And I can remember in the 100 meter race and my parents would tell me this, they would say, you start running and you're faster than everybody else. And then you look around and you realize nobody's next to you and you slow down. And I was like, wow. What am I doing? Correct. Yeah. So I had a similar experience when I was young. Again, this is back to young, is that I was a good little surfer. I had aspirations to go pro. I was a good little surfer in heavy consequential environments. When nobody was looking, you put me in the most dangerous position and I felt at home. Okay, this is kind of similar to what you're doing. As soon as we get to competition today and there's people on the beach and there's judges and critics and friends and supporters and whatever, I was a shell of myself. You can't have your mind at two places at the same time. We know that. Your mind can only focus on one thing at a time, one new thing at a time. So if one eye was on the beach and another eye is trying to be on the waves, it's too much to mm-hmm. bounce back and forth. So I was a disaster come competition day. So it was not my physicality. It wasn't my technical skills. It was just my mental skills. And it sounds like for you, you had the wheels, you had the physical frame, but when your mind would go a place that's unproductive, looking around, if you will, that's where psychology pays such dividends. Have you ever formally trained your mind? I meditate, but I don't know if that's what you're talking about. Close. I would give that a checkbox. Maybe there's a handful more to say that, yes, I'm formally training my mind. If you're in therapy or you're working with a psychologist, potentially, depending on the work that you're doing. But if you're sitting across from somebody that's highly skilled and trained and they are helping you understand your mind, this is a study of you. I don't think there's a better investment you can make. The mind is so complicated. It is so powerful. It is completely upstream to any performance certainly behaviors, and your emotions. So let me line that up again. Thoughts impact emotions. Thoughts and emotions together impact behavior. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, emotions, and behavior that are skilled are really what performance is about. Okay, this may be like nerding out, but is it that thoughts come first or emotions come first or have we figured that out? We think that it's like a bang-bang experience. They can go both ways. But for the most part, when you think about your relationship with thoughts and your relationship with emotions... It's far easier to work with thoughts, right? Oh, because yeah. you you could shift the thought, bang, bang. You can move it around. Mm-hmm. You can guide your thoughts. And then once emotions are there, you can guide them, but you can't control them. Mm-hmm. They're too powerful. It's like the elephant and the rider, right? So the yeah. rider is the thought and the elephant is the emotion. When an elephant wants to run, it's running, you know? So the best we can do in my mind is to be aware of our thoughts Be aware of our emotions, and that's where mindfulness and meditation pays dividends for you. Once you become more aware, you can work with them. Now you're working upstream, and you're not working like at the cliff's edge of the waterfall. That's the downstream kind of rapids of life. You can go upstream and work well, way upstream with your thoughts. Then the downstream impact is maybe you don't feel like you're going to fall off the cliff. Maybe you don't feel like it's a doomsday waiting to happen, or you're just exhausted because you're caught by your thoughts and you're caught by your emotions. So then is there a point where you can get to that? I'm not looking at the beach and the waves. I'm just looking at the waves. That's 100% the goal. 100%, not just for surfers or athletes. When you are more comfortable and better understand your thoughts and emotions and how your body's working, you damp down all of that internal noise so that you can give yourself to the present moment so that you can pour into a deep focus in the present moment. 
And when you do that, it's like you're no longer operating in a strobe light effect. Do you remember when you were in like seventh or eighth mm -hmm. grade, the strobe lights, and yeah. you're like, look at me move, and it <laughs> yeah. was, right? Okay, but that's how most of our minds work, is that we're shifting back and forth, back and forth, and the most optimal state we can be in, one of the entry points is deep focus. But when you're busy internally, if right now, if you're worrying about what I'm thinking of you, that's taking some resource away from focusing deeply on metabolizing or listening to the information or thinking about where you might want to go next, mm -hmm. you know, in the conversation. So yeah, when you can damp down all the noise inside, you can give yourself to the present moment. And the present moment is the unlock. That's where high performance happens. It's the entry point in the flow state. It's where wisdom is revealed. It's where all things that are true, beautiful, good, and amazing are experienced. So the present moment is the unlock to your best way of living. And to get into the present moment does require training because your brain, just like my brain at a 16-year-old kid and yours, you know, when you're looking around left and right, our brains are designed a million years ago with one primary dictum, survival. So when you walk into a threatening environment, your mind doesn't even have to think. Let's separate brain and mind technically for a moment. Brain is the three pounds of tissue in your skull. <laughs> the mind is like the software that's running that brain hardware. The brain is programmed without even having to think to ready you to fight, to flee, to freeze if required. And so you don't even have to think and your brain will go to that state. Okay, so if you don't train the software, if you don't upgrade the software of your mind, the way that you think, the brain's gonna win. And what it's designed to do is scan the world and find all the dangers. One of the great dangers that your great, 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 great ancestry and same with mine passed to us today is that if we were rejected from the tribe, it was a near death sentence. We died. Yeah. Yeah. It's too hard to fight and forge and hunt and gather and raise kids. We need the pack. We are social beings masquerading like individual contributors to something. <laughs> like we're more like a coral reef than a board of nails hanging out together. So let me not get lost in the... The coral reef was a good... I was like, like, ooh, yeah. You like that? Yeah. Well, I snorkeled in Australia and I was like, oh yeah, I see this. You see, that's see how it. we are. Yeah. Yeah. But we act like we're separate selves. That's part of our sickness that we feel in, in many of our relationships. But let me not go there yet. The idea is that your brain is designed to scan all of the world for threats. And what you think of me a million years ago, a hundred thousand years ago, was a real threat. So I better play right by the ethos of the tribe. I better fit in the middle of the pack because the wolves pick off the ones on the fringes. So I better stay in the center. What that means in modern times is I better just be liked because if you reject me, it triggers that whole sequence in your brain to fight, to flee, to escape the danger, which is the opinion of another person. So I think one of the great modern day threats that is not talked about enough is the opinions of other people, the critique and judgment by others, because it triggers a very specific part of our brain that says, right, this is no longer safe. You better fix this. How do you fix it? Do something to be liked. Just fit in. And that compromise to one's authenticity in modern times is problematic. So when you say the fear of other people's opinions is so problematic, first thing I go to is, all right, well, what do we do about the us who were raised as kids who wanted to perform, you know, grew up playing instruments and wanted to get into the right schools and be the best at what they were doing, et cetera. So for me, it's where that collides is performance anxiety, the fear of not being good enough, but also wanting to be like 
everyone. You know what I mean? It's okay, like I you kind of want you just both. Did. Yeah, I love what you just did. Performance anxiety and this fear of not being good enough. So performance anxiety, I'll deconstruct this with you. It would make sense that if something is important, your body knows how to ready itself, okay? That's a, actually a very cool way to think about anytime you've got some butterflies or nerves or something I mean, going that's on. how I felt before our interview. I was like, I'm ready. Like, this yeah, is, so this is important to me. A switched onness. Yeah. Right? Yep. And then to be super concrete, to be more precise, this is how we work with an elite athlete or an executive or anybody, is that you think about it in a super simple scale, one to 10, and you think about the porridge analogy. The porridge is too cold, mm -hmm. it's too hot, and it's just right. So the just right is a four, five, and six on that scale. Seven, eight, nine, ten is like it's too hot. I've got too much activation. And a one, two, three is like, yawn, I'm bored. What am I doing? So that's not going to work well for high performance. Seven, eight, nine, ten, like I feel like I want to throw up in my mouth. You know, like <laughs> that's too much activation, yeah, right? And that four, five, and six is you're in that slipstream where your thoughts are clear, your body's activated, you're thinking in an optimal way. And most people, if they don't train themselves, their mind, it's supposed to switch on. And it doesn't know when to stop. It just knows to switch on. And so how do you back it back down? 200,000 years ago, you just got away from the wildebeest. You got away from the saber-toothed tiger. And then naturally, your body would start coming down with long exhales. Because when you're running, what do you do? <sighs> yeah. So long exhales paired with relaxation, reset. So that's why you see some of the radical benefits right now from science, from the breathing training. Long exhales will trigger your brain to say, it's okay, you're safe. There's no saber tooth in your living room. And so go back to the performance bit as kids. I was one of those kids too. And our Western culture is obsessed with performance. We are obsessed. We force rank. There's one CEO, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? We love the top of the podium type of thing. We're constantly comparing ourselves to our best but more easily, we're comparing ourselves to what others are doing. So performance-based identity would be a natural thing to develop in a performance-obsessed culture. Right. Okay. So most of us have a performance-based identity. That is, the way that you feel about yourself is relative to how well you perform, relative to how well others perform in that same type of thing. Mm -hmm. So there's a comparison extension in this. So that's why when you go to the mound or the start of the track, you feel like there's a threat response taking place. This is why public speaking is so hard for so many. It's one of the great fears mm -hmm. because there's not somebody with a samurai sword in row three if you make a mistake. Like, what is the danger of public speaking? There's 50 sets of eyes staring at me waiting for me to mess it up. That's it. Yeah. So it's the opinions of others. That's the great threat. What are they going to think of me? And our brain wants acceptance. Our brain says that's safety. Belonging is safety. So I'm scanning the world, trying to figure out if I'm being accepted or if I'm being rejected. And then I start making up a story. This is what anxiety really is. I make up a story about later and left unchecked, it turns into a clinical disorder. Correct. Okay. You know this. <laughs> yes, I know this well. <laughs> I, I, I lived with anxiety in college. Like, God, it's so hard, but there's a better way through this. But so when you leave your imagination unchecked and it goes to the future and chronically thinks about all the things that could go wrong, your body is supposed to ready itself for those wrongs. So your body comes up, you're scanning outside of yourself to see if you're okay. Think about how egregious that is to look to another person to see if you're okay. You have completely abandoned your philosophy, your body of work, your neighborhood that you came from, 
the family origin, you've completely abandoned all of your scar tissue and you're gonna just about ready to fall into a thousand pieces and look for approval from another person. We can do better. But that is what happens for me, mm-hmm. for best in the world that I work with, when they don't train their mind. They're looking for an outcome. Am I on the top of the leaderboard? They're looking for approval from another person. Am I okay in the eyes of them? And then I'm okay. It's 100% backwards, but it makes sense. I share this with my therapist. We've talked about it a lot. I used to think of it as like a shape. And I would say to her, it's like, I'm a shape and it's an empty shape. I know the outline of the shape, but everything inside feels empty. And what I did as a kid was let other people fill that shape. There you go. There was no place to go back to. It was like everyone else was putting their stuff in there. And that's what made me okay or not. And that's not even And then you attach to, yes, Anne Rand talked about most people have a junkyard philosophy, a junkyard personal philosophy. Instead of like, so they grab a little bit of this, a little bit (laughs) of that, you know, a little bit of scrap metal here, and then it's cobbled together. And the opportunity and all the greats point to this, what I'm about to say, who are you? You know, like really do the work. Who do you want to be? And then stand for that. Like really stand for it. So from clarity to conviction is an interesting arc. And then what sits in between those two, once you're clear about your personal philosophy in life, you're clear about your purpose in life, you're clear about the values that you're going to stand for, okay? The people that you're going to stand for, that's usually related to purpose and personal philosophy. So that's the internal self-discovery work. Once you get clear on that, that's cool. That's mm-hmm. good adult work. And then that what's special, what all the greats have done is that they stood for it in high heat moments. They stood for it when the pressure was on and the great greats died for it. So what sits in between that is mental skills and psychological skills. That's what allows you to navigate the difficult, adverse, high heat, high pressure, speed and accurate environments. Do you have the skills to navigate that weather? The skill of being calm, which we just talked about zero to 10. The way you go from an eight, where I kind of feel like a little too much rattle, my heart's pounding a little bit too much, my breathing is changing, my body temperature's heated up, and I'm going to go stand in front of a boardroom and pitch what I think is a really important idea for our company's future. And I'm just too activated, breathing and self-talk. That's it. So that's how those two things that's work. That's how you downgrade. That's from, how you downregulate. Downregulate, yeah. yeah. Yeah, breathing and self-talk. But you have to practice those. We'll be right back with Michael Gervais. But before we go to break, let's hear from some of our listeners on how they're planning to improve themselves in 2024. I'm Gianna. I'm from New Jersey. And one thing I want to get better at in 2024 is slowing down. Growing up, sleeping in for my mom would be 7 a.m. She'd be up and out the door before I even woke up. So that was very much the example I looked to. And I've definitely incorporated those habits into my own life. I'm up, ready to go as soon as my eyes open, and I have a jam-packed day. So I really want to make sure that I'm being more intentional with my time and slow down to really enjoy the moment. How I'm going to do that, (laughs) I'm not exactly sure. But I think it's going to be just challenging my go-to, my autopilot, which is get up and go. So it's really going to be rewiring my brain to be more intentional about my time with friends, with myself, and slowing down, maybe just not making so many plans like I typically do to pack my day. My name is Jessie Hempel. I live in Brooklyn, New York. The thing that I want to be better at in 2024 is 
being wrong, specifically acknowledging that I'm wrong. And I say this because uh, so often I operate on my intuition. I feel like I have good judgment. No, I take that back. I know that I have good judgment. I trust my judgment. And that's important. I'm somewhere in the middle of my career, and my judgment is really what helps to establish my success in my field. But the thing is, the only thing that really is a constant in our lives right now is change. It feels like so much is changing. And we're going to have to become so much more adept at working with that change and being flexible and being willing to shift along with the shifts around us. And if I'm going to be able to do that, I'm going to have to allow for my own judgment to fail me sometimes. And I think that if I were willing to allow myself to be wrong more often than I am now, imagine what could shift for me, right? I could change course and adjust in moments that I might not otherwise be able to. And so the way that I'm going to do this is actually through trying deliberately to slow down a little bit, just taking that extra 15 minutes in the morning to fill up a notebook. It allows me to chronicle my thoughts, to look deeply at the places where my intuition, my judgment are jumping to conclusions and to question them. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product, though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so... We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Michael Gervais. So there's the fear of other people's opinions. There are a number of ways that you talk about how we develop self-worth in mm. your book. I was like, wow, I really identify with this. The performance, performance image. based identity. Yep. Uh, yeah. How you look has always been one for me, too. And I think it's all different based on how we grew up. I love your analogy about a shell. That's really available to me. I love that. I like that you used available. Yeah, yeah it, it felt like ma- it resonated quickly. And I think a lot of us, we all think in images. But I'm like, yeah. that metaphor felt like, oh, got yeah, it. That That's fits. what it is. That's yeah. cool. And so the goal is then what do I fill in with? That's it. That's the rite of passage to be an adult. We don't go into the bush and kill a lion or whatever we're supposed to do. And so what is the rite of passage to be like an adult? I think it's to know who you are, commit yourself to be on that path and to work from a set of first principles. 
And first principles are basically like your values mm -hmm. in action. You know, like Dr. King Jr. and Malcolm X had similar first principles, but the way that they shaped those first principles were materially different. Mm -hmm. So values, if you thought about like equality as a value, and then on top of it, the way you shape that value is a first principle. And then when you're clear about the purpose, how you're going to put those first principles to action, that's what a purpose is. And so if you could go from a performance-based identity, I am what I do, and I am good at what I do most of the time. And don't look at me and judge me if I'm not good, because then that's like, I'm not good. Right. And I'm nobody. Right. That's a lot to prop up. That's why one of the reasons we're in a human energy crisis is we're propping up a very narrow part of our existence is like the performative existence. Recognize that we have to perform. We have to do something. No problems. Mm -hmm. But if you could crosswalk that to a purpose-based identity, I matter because I'm here and I'm in service of something far larger than me. You want to get down with it? No? Okay, no problems. Maybe we'll get coffee in a couple right, months, right. right? But you want to get down? Yeah, that sounds right. All right, let's roll up our sleeves together. And that's when your purpose is big. Like if Mother Teresa was with us today, you know what we'd be talking about? Being in service to people that can't afford the things that we can afford like healing and love and kindness. And there's no doubt that her purpose was so big, it would saturate this room we're in. And so I want to live with people that they're very clear about their purpose. Let's go get it. And it's not performative, it's honest. Those are the people that I, I love to learn from. And hopefully I can take some of those best practices and share those best practices. So the way that we start to shift out of fearing other people's opinions is by building our own sense of identity based in purpose. That's a house built on rocks or oh, solid cool. foundation versus sand kind of idea, right? Cool statement. Okay. So so we start with that. And that's the like, what's my first set of principles, my first principle, my values? How does that look in action? Yes. Got it. Yeah. So we could play it out. Play yeah. It out and like we get out of the junkyard and yeah. actually create something that's our own. Well, it's like paper to pen first and get out of your own critic's mind. So if you were to think through people that inspire you, let's do like public figures. Oprah, Brene Brown. Okay, let's stick with those two sure. just for ease. Yeah. I immediately go to one value that they both have, and I could quickly get to a second one. I'll hold those back. What values do you think they stand for? Vulnerability. That was um, my first one. That, that So they're living yeah. it. That's clear, yeah. isn't it? So you value vulnerability. Yes. Okay. This is a clever way to get you to say vulnerability, <laughs> right. right? Like, you know, right? okay, <laughs> right. good. Okay, we got, got it. it. Yes. Got it. And what would be a second one? I mean, sharing would be something. Like oh, I wouldn't go there. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, if Oprah just was vulnerable and just sat in her house, how would any of us have changed our perception and perspective on oh, the world? That's cool. Same with Brene Brown. I think she has a pattern of going away. She does her research, she does her work, and she comes out with something that's a bang, and you go, whoa, that just changed me. But I don't think she'd be her if she couldn't come out and share. There you go. Okay, vulnerability and sharing. For both of those requires courage. So there's the kind yes. of the flip of that coin of courage, or vulnerability is definitely courage. There's some risk in there. So risk and courage. I, th I feel like you would value courage over risk. Yeah, yeah, it feels yeah right. Yeah. yeah. So let's just play with those three for right now. So if you just took those three and then you started to shape one or two sentences about how those things would show up for you. And like you just started thinking about what is my philosophy around courage and sharing and vulnerability. And you just wrote down some sentences. And you, maybe you had 12 sentences. I'd say, get that thing down to like 10 words or 12 words, because you could remember that. You can't remember like three like pages. Like right. Yeah, but you could get to a couple sentences, certainly one or two. And then that is the beginnings of your personal philosophy. It's kind of that simple. 
It's harder than it sounds to commit to it. And then you say, right, okay, so that's how I'm going to shape my thoughts, words, and actions. I'm going to shape them with courage, with vulnerability, and I'm going to share like mm -hmm. what's honest or something, right? Yeah. yeah. And so once you have that in place, that becomes a bit of a bellwether for the quote unquote right words and right thoughts and right actions for you, not for anybody else. And so if you're in a high heat moment and you feel some sort of external pressure and you fall back because you've trained your mind, right? You've trained confidence. It's a trainable skill. You've trained calm. So when you're kind of in the too hot porridge that you can find mm -hmm. that easy kind of slipstream and you've trained deep focus, you've trained the mental skills that you can choose thoughts, words, and actions lined up with those three values, you're winning. That's it. That's how you feel your own shape. And when you're in service of something far greater than you, like building homes for whatever, building wells for whatever, it doesn't have to be those two. It could be anything that you wanted. And you're honestly in service of that. You can't phase those people. Most people, though, are in service of looking good. I've definitely felt that and seen it in other people who I respect and admire and gone, okay, wait, is this person authentic or are they just trying to get people to look at them because of the way our world is shaped now with technology and social media? And I do feel like it's a balance of when you're honestly wanting something to be shared, there's the feeling of, I want people to see this. I want to put this out there. Yeah. But then it's easy to slip into the, like, how am I performing out there? That would be the slippery slope. And when you're on that performance-based approach to life, you could become the best in the world. You could get really good at it. Because what sits right underneath a performance-based identity, when you value the performative part of you more than others, there's a little bit of anxiety that sits in there, <laughs> really close to clinical anxiety, yeah. <laughs> okay? There's some OCD perfectionism that sits right underneath there. There's a little bit of neuroticism, just an overall kind of craziness about, like, am I doing it right? And why aren't you doing it right too, teammate? And then right underneath that, there's oh, a little- Oh, scary. Yeah. <laughs> Do you recognize this in you or somebody else? Someone else, Someone of else. course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'll tell them about this later. <laughs> One of my friends. Yeah. And then there's a little bit of narcissism. Like my performance and my ideas, what I stand for is more important than yours. So we're going my way, right? But that all rests underneath a performance-based identity. Listen, it'll get you really good, but yeah. there's a cost. Most people that I know that have held the medal around their neck, that have held the trophy of whether it's in the tennis association or golf or football or basketball or whatever, they barely have their lives together. You might want to have them over for dinner, you know, a couple times. And then when you really know what's up, you go, whoa, this is pretty dark. It's hard to be partners with those people. It's hard to be a spouse. It's hard to be filling anything else around them because of their exacting nature, because it is about them. I didn't say this earlier, but right out of college, I went into pro sport and I was like, all right. And then I left three and a half seasons into it. I was like, this is bullshit. I cannot help a narcissistic fill in the blank, like have this megaphone and only talk about results and only talk about themselves. So that's when I went in the backcountry to go back to honest environments where if people make mistakes, the most consequential things happen. And that's what I'm hoping to bring forward in the work that I'm doing now. Toward the end of your book, you talk about redefining what it means to be us and how we show up now that we've figured out how to stop worrying so much about other people's opinions, how to actually form our own identity that's based in purpose, 
how do we then redefine? But also what came up for me in the how we redefine is like, why redefine? And it reminded me of my mom gave me this article when I was probably 11 or 12. And I looked at it and went, I don't want to look at this. And I realized later that was because it resonated. (laughs) And the article was, it was about fear of success and fear of failure and how both of those things can live together very easily. And so when I think about the end of your book and I think about your redefining and why, I go, how many people are out there that have untapped potential that are afraid of being successful, whatever that means to them and the way they define it, hopefully not in the way we've all defined it. And we're talking about moving away from that. How many people are out there that will be too afraid to do that? And how do you get them inspired? And so one of the things you talked about was living with a shot clock. Can you talk about that? Because I think that helps us kind of round out why go on this journey of mastery. So the shot clock is this idea that we, like when you and I leave here today and we wrap up, I'll say goodbye. Mm -hmm. So will you. And there'll be this thought like, We'll see each other again sometime. But we don't know that. And when we say that to our parents or our spouses or kids, like, see you later, we just don't know. And if you've lost somebody, you know exactly what I mean by that. And so when we don't know and we play like it's going to all be okay, it's being really sloppy with the relationship. So when I say goodbye to you, this is part of my meditation practice, I will say goodbye and there'll be a thoughtfulness. You might not even notice it, but it'll be like, thank you for your time. And I really mean it because I don't know if we'll ever have it again. And I do it every day with my son and I do it every day with my wife and I do it with all the people that I love is that I just spend a moment and that means I appreciate how present you were. Even if we were 75% of our best selves and we're arguing or agitated or I was tired, thank you for being in it with me when I'm shit. So the shot clock is just this idea if you knew that you had 24 hours left, if you knew you had 2.4 days or... If you knew you had a shot clock, how would you live your life? If you knew you had 24 years, period, done. What are you going to do? I don't know if you're going to pad your bank account as much as anxiously you're wanting to do that. So it's just a good thought experiment for me to go through. And there's nothing wrong with having a fantastically wealthy life. Nothing wrong with that. However, when you're muted in dimension in other areas of your life, there is a problem. You know, So it's just a shot clock. Like Maybe take a moment and push your chair back from the desk and say, what am I doing? with the time I have left. And if I don't know how much time I have left, what am I really doing here? And it's a forcing function to say, get in the present moment more often, because that's where everything amazing is taking place. And your spotlight effect question, Mm. it'll tie in nicely here. Thomas Gilovich did some research and what he found is that we walk around with a spotlight on us thinking that the world is watching us. Like, do you think my hair is out of place? Do you think that my, my, my shirt is okay? Do you think what I'm saying is okay? It's about me and my spotlight. When you have your own spotlight and you're in your head wondering if you're okay. Mm-hmm. And like, so that spotlight effect, according to research, he sent out these college students wearing the ultimate not cool shirt, the Barry Manilow embossed shirt, right? That's a big, <laughs> big picture of Barry Manilow. Perfect. And he lined these kids up and one by one. They went out into the lecture hall with another hundred students And those 100 students didn't know what the experiment was. And the kids wearing the ugly shirt, they would have a response. They'd say, you want me to wear this in front of them? Really? And then they would ask, how many people do you think will notice that you're wearing this shirt? And the estimate was like, oh, at least 50, probably more like 75. Come to find out they were wrong by about 50%. Only about 25% of people even notice the shirt you're wearing. Wow. So we're walking around with the spotlight effect when actually very few people are looking at us. Because we're all in our own. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So grandma had this one right. Yeah. You know? 
It's like, honey, they're not paying attention Nobody's to you. Nobody's looking at you. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're worried about their own stuff. According to research, grandma was right. Grandma was right. Yeah. So how does that wrap back around? If we're one of the things that pulls us out of being fully immersed in this moment is the spotlight and this obsession with am I okay in the eyes of others? And so it's another way to reinforce that we're walking around with this excessive worry if we're okay. And there's a better way to do it than that. And that's why we name it one of the great constrictors of human potential is this obsessive fear, this obsessive worry about what other people are thinking of us. Mm. And the goal is to come to a place where we have a shape. I'll come back to my shape. We have a shape that's filled in by us. How about it? Yeah. And and I think I would leave room. There's a new thought for me that you're introducing. I would leave room for the people who care. I want to care about their opinions. So I want to leave space in there for, like, I am who I am because my wife has, like, committed to helping me be my very best. And so I need... I need to have the right amount of space for the people that care. And that feels very loving to be yeah. able to do that. Yeah. And it moves away from this like hyper individualistic, like I am who I am. I don't care what you think, because that's not what you're talking about here. And it's not necessarily healthy for the uh, the concept or the idea or the truth that we are all pack animals, that we're social, that we need each other. We need each other. Yeah. N- nobody like as an athlete yourself, n- even though you're the only one on the track running your lane, you didn't do it alone. You had a whole team. Part of it was at home. Part of it was on the track. Part of it was in, you know, um, in the weight room. Like, we, we, nobody does the extraordinary alone. Mm-hmm. And if you want to live an extraordinary life of joy and happiness and meaning and purpose, we need each other. And so if you're walking around with your spotlight, making sure you're okay, you never really are able to get in service of others because your life vest is not fastened properly. And so, you know, the analogy, once your life vest is on, you can help another. So that idea is like, when you make an investment in your own psychology and your wellness, your sense of flourishing and the mechanical practices that support that, you can be there for others. But if you're all about you and thrashing in the rapids of life saying, oh my God, I'm so stressed. When somebody says that to me, you know what that means? Like privately to me, non-judgmental, of course, is that, oh, you don't, you don't have the right psychological skills to meet this moment. Okay, well, let's go to work. But when someone says, oh, I'm so stressed out, that just means that the external demands are bigger than the internal resources. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. So part of that fullness, I would leave space in the shape for psychological skills so that you know how to be calm. You know how to be confident. You know how to adjust and be agile. Those are all trainable skills that you can go into high heat, high stress moments and be like, let's go figure this thing out. Come on. So the external world does not whip around your sense of being. Wow. I'm going to have you complete these three statements. All right. So better humans are. Better humans are in service. And so I'm pointing to a purpose. I'm pointing to truly be in service. I have to be in the present moment. And to be in the present moment, I must train my mind. And so if we get to the end result, like we're in service of something bigger than us, that's purpose. Better work is? Investing in the psychology of people during work hours, putting psychology in the rhythm of business. Psychology in the rhythm of business. That's what we do in elite sport. Big sport is about 15 years ahead of big business. Okay, so 15 years ago in elite sport, you would ask every coach or athlete, like, how important is the mental part of the game? And what did they say? 
A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and then you if you look at them sideways, like it can't be a hundred, and then and you look at them to give them, and they go, well, at least ninety five. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so then what was happening fifteen years ago? You'd, I'd say like, okay, so what are you doing in service of building the mental part of the game? They go, oh, we got a good sports psych, you know, like we got a therapist or we got a psychologist that's you know right across town. Ten years ago, oh, we got a psychologist in the building, you know, and so yeah, we're progressive. Five years ago, that psychologist no longer has an office. They are part of the fabric of the coaching staff and they're teaching best practices to the coaches and to the athletes. It's, it's not like one-on-one work, it's systemic. So inside the rhythm of business, you're teaching imagery, you're teaching meditation, you're teaching breathing training, you're teaching confidence training. You're not asking them to do it when they get home. And so in big business, that's where we're going to point to is inside the rhythm of business, we're going to teach the required psychological skills for people to be their best. We're not going to burn and churn. That's sloppy. We're not going to extract the best of a human at the cost of their relationship with their kids. We're not doing that. The best of the best are going to do it differently. They're going to pour in so that people are fully present wherever they go. It's good for performance. It's good for well-being. It's good for bottom line. And it's good for just that sense of flourishing in life. That's what's coming. It's not there yet, but that's what's coming. That's what I'm hoping to give. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And a better world has. Kindness in it. Oh, that's easy. Yeah, that's really easy. Simple. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It was great talking to you. And I loved getting to play with you in some of these values, exercises, et cetera. But it was so fun. There's a ton more to learn from you. So I'm excited for the next book. Well, thank you for creating space for me to muse and have some fun. And I really appreciate being included in your community. So nice job on it, by the way, too. Thank you. Thank you. That was Michael Gervais, high-performance psychologist and self-mastery enthusiast. His book is The First Rule of Mastery. Stop worrying what other people think of you. One big thing before we go. It's the new year, and whether you like setting New Year's resolutions or prefer to make improvements on your own timeline, like I do, this time does invite us to reconsider our path, our purpose, and our everyday progress. And I know there's something that you can and want to challenge yourself to shift or improve. It doesn't have to be big, but it does have to be true to you. When you do make this choice, the bravest mindset you can embrace is that of realizing that worrying about everyone else's thoughts, opinions, and beliefs will never serve you. Whether it's taking on a new initiative with your physical health, changing how you approach your career or everyday work, up-leveling your relationships, or feeling better emotionally in general, be brave enough to make the choice, choose whose opinions matter most, and move forward with purpose. And don't forget, Your bravery might inspire someone else to do exactly what you're doing. So here's to an intentional 2024. If this conversation resonated with you, share it with the first person who comes to mind. You never know how it could help them out. And support other people like you in finding our show by leaving us a rating before you go. While you're at it, write a one-sentence review telling me and the team what you love about Everyday Better. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential and meaningful living. Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Our associate producer is Rafa Fariha. Asaf Gijron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn original audio and video. 
Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me. Happy New Year, and I'll see you next week.